Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. My name is Tyler. I'm so glad that you're here with us today or joining us online. As I begin, uh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please send your spirit on us now to fill up and support us in every weakness, that in what is spoken and what is heard, we may meet your living word, your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So we're in week four of our teaching series, Joy in Everything, where we're reading through Philippians, this ancient letter from St. Paul, uh, the early missionary and church planter, to a church that he established in the Greek city of Philippi. As we've mentioned, Philippians is quite literally a joyful letter, with joy and rejoicing showing up over and over again. And if you haven't been with us for the past weeks, a quick recap. First, we talked about how joy and happiness aren't the same thing. That joy isn't about having good circumstances, but encountering God's grace. We talked about how joy can be found in understanding God's purposes for us. And last week, Jenny talked about uh, how humility brings joy because it eliminates the conflicts that come out of our pride. You can check all those out on YouTube if you missed any. But this week's reading from Philippians 2 that, uh, that Adriel read for us brings this whole opening section of the letter to a close. Why don't you follow along in your pew Bibles or uh, your Bible app if you like. We're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And this week we're going to look at what it means to find joy in the struggle of life, which is something I'm unfortunately sure everybody here can relate to. Finding joy in the struggle, that's our focus today. So we're starting here in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And let me tell you, you should always take your time with Bible reading, but there is taking your time and there's taking your time, and there is so much spiritual treasure in this one sentence, these two verses, that we're going to camp out here for a bit. So first of all, right off the bat, we can see that it's following directly on what we heard about last week. Therefore, my beloved. Therefore, as in all the stuff that I just wrote. And what has Paul just written? Well, he's been urging the Philippians to cooperate with one another. And not just to cooperate, but to put the interests of others above themselves. And to do that, to put someone else first, which in a nutshell is what loving someone means... To have that same humility, Paul says, is to have the very same mind that Jesus had. Because as we see back in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, that's what Jesus did. He didn't claim and exploit the uh, privilege of being God. He emptied himself into human existence and humbled himself and was obedient, even to the point of dying on the cross. And I really want you to hear this. Because everything we do and say here, and in fact who we are as a community, hangs on this claim. That Jesus was obedient to humility even to the point of dying on a cross. What Paul's telling us is, this is who God is. This is what God is like. It's this stupefying claim that God is humble. God loves us, but we only know that because in Jesus, God humbles himself by becoming human. And not only that, God in Jesus is obedient to that fundamental movement of humility. So he doesn't pull up short. He doesn't become human and say, okay, I've gone far enough, but no further. No, Jesus follows the vector. He rides the momentum all the way to its bitter end, even to the point of dying on a cross. 
And if you've ever been to a funeral and in the eulogy someone told a story where it was just perfectly encapsulated the deceased, like depicted them perfectly, that, that's what Paul is trying to do here. He's saying that in Jesus' obedience to the self-giving movement of humility, we see the heart of God. We see the true character of God. We see what God is really like. And I say all of that because that's what you've got to have in mind when we drop in on verse 12 saying, Therefore, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, therefore, as in because Jesus is like this, obedient to humility, you also ought to obey. You also ought to be obedient to humility, putting others ahead of yourselves, even though I, Paul, am not personally there to give you the old stink eye. Do this, Paul says. In obedience to humility, then, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is, I think, one of the most honest lines in all of Scripture. Because it so perfectly gets at the essential challenge of being alive. The essential, the struggle of existence itself, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to unpack this a bit, and I need to start with that word salvation, because If you don't know what it means, how would you understand what it is that you're working out, let alone with fear and trembling, right? And if you're a spiritual seeker, the term might be confusing, and I guarantee that there are any number of Christians here who believe in their salvation, but they don't necessarily have a definition at the tip of their tongue. And it's biblical usage. Salvation means something like rescue, deliverance. It means healing. And at its core is the idea that there's a goodness that comes from being saved from a threat. So it's a good thing to relax on a sunny beach, but that's not salvation. Salvation is when you're up to your neck in flood water and a rescue boat comes by. Salvation is when you fall onto the subway tracks and a hand reaches down to pull you out. Salvation is when the surgeon tells you, we got there in time and she's going to be okay. Salvation is when things could have and would have gone bad, but they went well instead. Salvation's a surprise. It's a gift. It's a delight. And salvation, deliverance, rescue... Healing is precisely what we say is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus saves us. He gives us salvation in the sense that on our own, left to our own devices, each of us finds ourselves captive to sin, fundamentally inclined. That means fundamentally inclined to put ourselves ahead of God and ahead of our neighbor. And we are all headed for a grave that we cannot avoid where we meet the judgment of God for the lives we have lived. We don't live the way we want, and we don't live forever. And on our own, we have no capacity to save ourselves, either from the way that we are or where we're going. But in Jesus' obedience to humility, God rescues us. God saves us by forgiving us our sins, by showing us how to live, by empowering us to live that way by the Holy Spirit, and by promising us eternal life with God. It's healing, it's deliverance, it's rescue at an existential level. And that's a lot to take in, I know, and fair enough, you can believe it or not, but it's the only story we've got here. So that's salvation, but here's the tricky bit. Salvation is also a process. Because salvation is something that's given to us in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you are saved, but it doesn't always feel like it, does it? Because life isn't always easy. In fact, life's often, most of the time, struggle. So the promise of salvation is that someday the pain and the challenge of struggle of life will give way to rest and peace and joy. So we say that we are saved now, and that means that we're hoping on that 
future salvation. We are saved, and also there's going to be a day where we will be saved, and in between now and then lies the struggle of life, and that's what Paul means when he says, work out y'all's salvation. It's a plural you here. This is a letter to a community. You've got to work out day by day, hour by hour, what it means to be in this process of being saved, of being pulled from the floodwaters of sin and death into the rescue boat of love and life. And that's so important to pay attention to because there are caricatures of Christian faith that say, okay, you just you pray this prayer one day and then when you die you'll go to heaven and that's it. As if salvation is past tense and future tense, but never now. But Paul's saying, no, salvation is an ever-present now. You've got to keep working it out. And it's no mystery what that looks like. Working out your salvation means following in Jesus' footsteps, obeying the humility of love, putting others ahead of yourself. Being a community where each person doesn't, sit which, doesn't seek what's best for themselves, but where each person seeks what's best for everybody else. But why do we do that with fear and trembling? It sounds like Paul's saying that working out your salvation is inherently fraught and frightening, and it is. Because working out your salvation is fundamentally about coming to terms with the mystery of our existence. There's no way of sugarcoating this. The mystery of the fact that we're here, we're alive. Like, it's easy. You're sitting on these solid pews with this sturdy roof over our heads and a stone beneath our feet and the towering buildings all around us and our jobs and our families and our activities. It is easy to imagine that life makes sense, that we can all kind of know what to do and our situations can be worked out with confidence and stability instead of fear and trembling. But that's not true, is it? Because we don't know where we came from, not really. None of us here asked to be conceived. We don't remember our first breaths. You don't remember your early childhood. You have an earliest memory, but it's not like it started and then everything follows in sequence. We don't wake up into existence. We simply find ourselves as having been alive, and kind of inexplicably so. And we have to work out what that means for ourselves without an instruction manual. And so we pick the various roadmaps to get us through life, chasing after desires that come naturally to us, our pleasures, our hungers, following the scripts maybe that are offered to us by our families, our cultures, our religions. But none of these are going to save us from the situation of sin and death. They're just ways to pretend like we know what we're doing with this life we've been given while we wait to die. Just as we're stumbling through the darkness, trying to figure it all out, out of nowhere comes this single figure blazing like the sun, and this is Jesus. And he says, follow me. Follow me, and I will save you from the captivity of sin, the captivity of your self-love. Follow me, and I will even save you from death. He says, follow me, follow me down in the obedience of humility. Follow me down in the humility of love. If you give your life You will gain it. If you lose your life, you will save it. The truth is that Christian faith is less about our big decisions and grand gestures than it is about how we live out every mundane, humble minute of every day in the obedience of humility that is love for everyone you meet. And that's the fear and trembling because nothing in this life can ever tell you that it's safe to live like Jesus. Nothing in this life can tell you it's safe to love like Jesus. You run the very real risk of looking the fool in a world where forgiveness looks weak, 
and honesty can look stupid. And virtue seems simple, and self-denial makes no sense at all because the more you have, the more following Jesus is going to cost you. It's a leap of faith. And faith without fear and trembling is no faith at all. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, following Jesus in the loving obedience of humility that can only be justified by faith. But as you do know this, it's not up to you and you're not alone. Because it's God who's working in you. That's what salvation is. It's a rescue that you can't offer yourself. So it's God who's giving you the will even to follow him. And it's God who's giving you the strength to do the working out of that salvation he calls you to. Because it's God's good pleasure to save you, Paul says. It's God's good pleasure to bring you home. Well, I'm nearly out of time and I've gotten two verses into the reading. (laughs) But that's okay. I'm telling myself that's okay. Because the rest of our passage is honestly an illustration of what I've just been talking about. I'm going to have to move pretty quickly here on account of banging on about salvation and existence. But take a look at verses 14 to 18. Do all things, Paul says, that is all the things involved with working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all those things without murmuring or arguing so that you can be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What he's talking about is this. About 1,500 years before Jesus, God had set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt with all these miracles. But even though they saw God's direct care, they still murmured and argued, Scripture says. And Scripture describes them as a crooked and perverse generation. Don't be like them, Paul says. Don't be like the people who experienced God's goodness firsthand and then spent the rest of their lives complaining. You know he's a savior. You know he rescues. So you go through the struggle. And I know it's hard, and God knows it's hard, but you hold fast to that word of life, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and you'll shine like stars in a dark world, Paul says. Then it doesn't matter what happens to me, Paul says, if I'm poured out over the sacrifice of your faith, if I'm emptied out like Jesus was, I'm glad and I rejoice, I have joy. And Paul's not being euphemistic here. He was beheaded in Rome, and his blood was poured out. He was emptied in martyrdom as his Lord had emptied himself and he rejoices at this, knowing it's coming because God is winning. And in verses 19 to 30, Paul concludes today's reading with two really practical things. Here's where the rubber hits the road. He lets the Philippians know he wants to send them his right-hand guy, Timothy, and also that he's sending Epaphroditus back to them. Epaphroditus, who was a native of Philippi, who got really sick and almost died, and the Philippians back home were really worried about him. And what Paul says is, Epaphroditus has been super anxious to know that his family and friends are worried. And what Paul says is, God had mercy on Epaphroditus and me, because it would have been sorrow after sorrow if he died. And there's the struggle, isn't it? Paul's been going on about working on out your salvation with fear and trembling, and it's God working in you. And then here he is saying, like, yeah, we're super anxious and depressed over here. These two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're working out their salvation. They're putting others ahead of themselves. They're obedient to the point of death, and it's still stressful. It's still hard. Faith doesn't make it easy. But Jesus doesn't want pretty lies that make the world, that make life seem easier than it is. Jesus says, I know it's hard. I know it's a struggle. I know it because I did it too. And I promise if you follow me down, my Father will lift you up the way he did me. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I'm certain that you're struggling with something. Here's what I do know. 
You can be stressed out. You can be sad. And Jesus will still be the way. And he will show us the way because he walked it. There's no love he asks us to give that he didn't give himself first. And the joy and the struggle is simply this, that wherever Jesus asks you to go, you will find him there waiting for you. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who wills and works in you for his own good pleasure. Amen.